Welcome to the Quadra Alumni Podcast. On this podcast, you'll be hearing from members of the Quadra Alumni Association recalling personal experiences from the queue. The goal of the Quadra Alumni Podcast is to have engaging discussions about HMCS Quadra and to reminisce with the people who lived and breathed the Quadra way. Good morning, Quadra. Good morning, sir. Wow. We've just been Good Morning Quadra by Captain Alsgaard. This is an excellent day in the Quadra Alumni podcast world. My name is Matt Waterman. I'm the host. Uh, and I just want to introduce the rest of the room. Uh, we have sidekick Steve on the soundboard. Steve, thanks for helping out today. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. And uh, we have uh, former commanding officer of HMCS Quadra, Stuart Alsgaard. He served uh, as Quadra CO from 67 to 72, I believe. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Um, and we have his uh, duty driver, who's here with us today as well, Richard Greenwood. Welcome, Richard. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have an admiral driving the captain around. <laughs> 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 okay. So uh, what we do, sir, is uh, obviously I have my list of items that we, we go through. But the first thing I like to do is what I call a little rapid fire. Are you ready for this? You can just blurt out your answer when you're ready. Carry here we, on. Here we go. Mexico or Maui? Maui. Favorite knot? Bolin. Jetty jump or run to the wall? 18 feet. <laughs> uh, favorite quadra meal? Hmm. The best they could produce was probably... Um, Red, lead, and what was the other part of it? Bacon or some rigid yeah. thing, yes. <laughs> okay. And uh, do you have a favorite quadra tune? Yeah, Heart of Oak. All right. That was pretty quick. Well, welcome, and thank you for coming to the podcast today. A pleasure. Okay, so, uh, sir, as long as I've known of you, is, uh, you're, you're a Powell River person, but can you tell all of our listeners a little bit more about really where you're from and, and where you grew up? Certainly. Born yeah. in uh, Powell River, B.C., yeah. actually, and uh, lived in the neighborhood of Cranberry, Cranberry Lake. Born in uh, 1935 on the 18th day of August. Someone told me the day the world stood still. But anyway, whatever else happened, once we get over the ego business, we're fine. <laughs> so uh, went to school there, elementary and uh, uh, junior and senior high school. Graduated and proceeded uh, to the University of British Columbia. Oh, And okay. uh, there at UBC, I enrolled in a program uh, called uh, the UNTD, which is for the University Naval Training Division. Yeah. That was a program to, devised to, uh, during the latter part of the Second World War to bring into the Naval Reserve component uh, people as commissioned officers, primarily in what you now call the Mars field. Okay. But or as executive officers. Yeah. So the deal was very simple. Uh, once you had your acceptance into the university, now you had to shop around and and see what courses you could get, all of which was conducted in a building called the Armories on campus. Okay. And I remember standing there in 1953 with my little certificate saying, I was accepted, now get on with it. Mm-hmm. Stumbling through the door and looking at this vast collection of various people 
offering to teach me something in my life, and uh, but for I got, I'm sure a price. But nonetheless, the first thing I saw was a table, and sitting about that table were three people dressed in naval officer cadet uniforms. And uh, I thought, well, I really did have an interest earlier on in perhaps the Navy. Mm-hmm. I had looked into uh, the ROTP program, uh, and someone mentioned to me, well, if, if, you, uh, if you're not interested in that, but you still want to carry on, here is the other program, which you can only be uh, enrolled in when you actually get to a university. So I sat down, and uh, here facing me were two cadet captains and uh, one senior cadet of the UNTD and myself in my uh, university rig, which was pretty plain and simple with a little beady on my head, (laughs) uh, filling out a form, not realizing I was being photographed. And that picture appeared in the UBC shortly thereafter, and it's now in the 100th anniversary edition of the university. Okay. And uh, I just happened to see a copy a while back, opened it up, and I couldn't believe that uh, this little trog was uh, sitting there uh, uh, filling out the forms and getting ready to get on with it. It was a marvelous experience, and uh, they were quite strict about it. You enrolled as a probationary cadet, and you had until Christmas to prove your academic worth. And if you didn't make the mark, then out you went uh, with whatever pays you were entitled to at that stage. If you did make the mark, you were promoted to the rank of officer cadet. Okay. And hence there was the little white twist that we wore on our blue battle dress uh, uniforms. And uh, you were in. And okay. from there on, it was uh, three years of uh, training, and you would be commissioned uh, when you received your, uh, your degree. Okay. All right. So that happened uh, after uh, four years, and uh, I remember standing in that same armory, uh, having gone from being probationary cadet to uh, cadet captain, and uh, maintaining that uh, august rank uh, when I was off for summer training on the East uh, Coast, uh, which okay. was in itself an experience. Now that's, what, that's how it got started. Right, and then, so let's describe to everyone because uh, you know i don't i don't know the history behind how you actually got to quadra i mean it wasn't very far away from powell river but uh, the whole connection then to quadra itself well i guess it would be correct to say i had no knowledge whatsoever of uh, what the royal canadian sea cadet organization was about other than to be aware that uh, there were young people in the community that were doing well in this and and yeah. receiving trips abroad with the navy and so on mm-hmm. But uh, I had um, finished my uh, university time and uh, I had uh, picked up a a teaching certificate, uh, which came later. Um, And I had come over here in my fourth summer uh, to uh, do my naval, have my naval responsibilities. And Mm -hmm. um, I have a cousin in the city who is uh, three years ahead of me, who uh, taught school at uh, Oak Bay. Okay. And uh, and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I really don't know. Uh, well, are you going to uh, join the permanent Navy or are you going to, uh, you, have a, you have a teaching certificate. Uh, right. uh, if you want, you need something to keep uh, body and soul together, mm-hmm. i.e. earn a living. Therefore, mm-hmm. why don't you dust it off and use it? 
So at uh, Central Junior High School, I think it was. Oh, right. at, yep. uh, right downtown. Uh, yes, uh, was where the uh, inspectors of schools and selected teachers would mark the provincial government exams. This was the recruiting depot okay. for new teachers. Oh. So I marched in there and uh, wearing my uniform as a young lieutenant. Right. And uh, this fellow came right over to me and said, uh, what do you want? And I said, well, I'm looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, don't you have one? I said, well, perhaps I do, perhaps I don't, but I'm, I'm interested in this. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, I'm from Lake Cowichan, and uh, what do you teach? And I said, well, I'm prepared to teach mathematics and science. Uh, and he said, uh, well, you're hired. I can offer you a job. So I thought, very well, I'll let Perfect. you know tomorrow. It follows well. Marched out the door. Couldn't wait to get and tell my cousin that I now had a job in Lake Cowichan, to which he said, you did what? <laughs> He said, you go back up there, go across the street to Craig Derry Castle, go up there and see, uh, I think Alec Turnbull was the, he was a deputy inspector here at that time. Okay. I walked into his office and uh, he said, what? And I said, well, I, I would like a job, sir. And he said, turn around. So I turned around expecting to be shot in the back or whatever. <laughs> And here was a blackboard, and on that blackboard it was listed uh, all of the secondary level schools, senior and junior, to which he said, pick one. And I then said, well, I think, with all due respect, that's your job, and uh, you tell me where, except that I don't think it would be appropriate to go to Oak Bay because I have a cousin there. And uh, not that I dislike my cousin, I admire him very much, but it's always wise to keep the family Right. Separated. Uh -huh. So he said, there, he said, you shall go there. There was Lansdowne Junior High School okay. on yep. Richmond Road, I think yep. it was, yeah, which was quite new. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you're to be there the day before Labor Day, so you will be told what the rules of engagement are. So very well, you do what you're told, and you went there. I walked into that staff room, and from the teacher training course that I had taken after at uh, UBC, here are three people that were on that same course. Okay, right. The so, PNRT instructor, right. and uh, I've forgotten most of their names. I have one name, mm -hmm. but um, anyway, so it was old home week. We had a great principal. His name was Don McDonald, and uh, the vice principal was uh, really great. His brother was a minister of the, of the crown at that time. I'm trying to think of the name, but uh, mm -hmm. it escapes me at the moment. So here we were, about 90%, barely, what, six years older than the kids you were there to teach? And uh, I'm full of a naval approach to how things need to be done. Right. And uh, I learned very quickly that there's a difference between what's done in the school and uh, what is done under the naval organization. So I remember going in my first day, and here was a class of grade nine or whatever they were, you know, wonderful uh, young person, people sitting there, very, very disciplined, very obedient, very attentive. And I came in with my Harris Tweed jacket. That was the, that was the thing in those right. days. Yeah. And I guess they took one look at me and figured, we'll sort him out pretty quick. Give, give <laughs> us a month and we'll have him trained. Yeah. And uh, they taught me a lot, but they were wonderful young people. And, um, you know, and I, once in a long while, uh, i Actually, was walking. I was in a bank in uh, Vancouver many years ago, and uh, this fellow strode up to me and he said, "Well, Mr. Alsgard, it's nice to see you. How are you?" 
And it was a kid from that class wow. who by yeah. now, of course, was well yeah. on his way into whatever right. he was doing. But mm-hmm. uh, So uh, summer training became a matter. and uh, I, There was an obligation as a naval reservist to put in a minimum of 15 days naval training a year. Okay. Uh, so I uh, put my uh, uh, came to the end of that school year, and um, uh, I put in for the summer training after that because I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after that first year, and I'd been offered a permanent position for with the Victoria School Board and so okay. on. Yeah. Um, but I thought, is this really it, or do I really want to go and see the world? But not under the gray funnel line and, uh, and not <laughs> painting my way or chipping my way from A to B. Right. So uh, I uh, thought, well, I've saved up, I saved up my, uh, my earnings uh, from that first year of teaching. I had $1,000 in the bank at the end of that first year. And I can remember the branch of the bank on Shelburne Street where I put it. And that was a fantastic sum of money. And I thought, that's enough to get me out of the country and where shall I go from here? So, And lots of people were uh, supply teaching around the world or whatever you had to do. So I uh, set off really uh, heading for uh, uh, Australasia, and I thought, well, we'll end up in uh, uh, Australia, which yeah. I uh, landed in and spent uh, a year teaching there oh, okay. in Sydney, and, uh, before which I, uh, I arrived there too early for the school year, forgetting that, you know, there... The opposite right. way around. A different, yeah, different schedule. Yeah. And needed a job. I had five pounds, five pounds in my jeans at this point, plus my American Express traveler's checks, which was my ticket home. <laughs> if I yeah. got, anyway. So uh, I uh, had applied to the, uh, for the teaching, and I was uh, told that, yes, I was qualified, but uh, the schools were not, uh, nothing available until March or whatever it was. So I would have to get a job in the meantime. I was sitting in a tram one day, and I looked up, and it said, uh, join the territorial police. Serve Australia. I thought, oh, very well. I I could inquire into that. (laughs) And I went to wherever it was, and uh, there was a a fellow there that obviously created the territorial police and dealt with people who would dare to come in to apply to join. What do you want? You know, what's your story kind of thing? And uh, so... I said, well, uh, this is my situation, and what is the deal? And he said, well, I'll tell you quite frankly, it's if, if you're in and accepted following your training, it's three years in Papua New Guinea. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, yes, and that final year is a shrunken head on someone's shelf. <laughs> uh, you know. And, uh, so I thought, well, he said, if you're interested, uh, here are all the forms. You can go and get them completed. Right. So I got back on the tram and went off to where I was. Uh, uh, I had some digs at that time. And uh, there's another poster, and it said, uh, New South Wales Transportation Board needs conductors. And I thought, oh, very well, I can apply for that. So I went <laughs> off to the local tram depot and uh, marched in, and uh, and the guy looked at me and he said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, I think maybe we can do something for you. And I had, I think, six weeks to go before uh, the teaching job came up. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I was accepted, and, uh, and that was quite an experience. My route was from downtown Sydney, Elizabeth Street, out to Watson's Bay. It was a beautiful tram run, one of the best they had. 
So my job was uh, armed with a little ticket uh, voucher, and it was all the pound sterling system in those days. So every time you cross a magic line, it cost sixpence more or something like that. So I had, I think, about 10 tickets to choose from and a pouch had put, uh, to put the coins. And they would bang two of these trams together in the rush hour, and uh, this was not an inside corridor tram. You ran up and down a board on the outside of the tram, and bear in mind, you drive on opposite sides of the streets, a right-hand yeah, drive. Yeah. So it was a good thing I was slim, because I learned very quickly that uh, what's coming up the track... Is not very far away. Is not very far away. <laughs> and uh, you better get on with your job, which is to get those fares. Reach in there and grab the money. <laughs> so I'll make this, uh, bring it to a conclusion quickly here, but uh, during the rush hours, uh, trams built to hold perhaps 75 people apiece would often have over 100 on there clinging to anything that you could hang on to. And off it would go at 12 miles an hour up William Street to King's Cross and so on. Well, my boss was a uh, uh, obviously a very senior conductor, and she had her campaign ribbons on here from the war period and whatever little gold bars on her sleeve. I had nothing right. except a little jacket that said New South Wales State Transportation. Nothing. Yeah. And uh, she said to me, this is what you do. You get the, the many fares as you possibly can. And she said, when we get to the cross, if you don't see me, don't worry about it. Just get on with your duties and carry on. Yes, ma'am. And uh, so I had another, whatever it was, 14 miles to go. We get up to King's Cross and this herd on the trams gets off and takes off. And I'm there with maybe 30 people left on the two trams, and away we go, and, uh, and all the way out coming back. When I get back, there she is, standing there. Hops on the tram, and uh, just a pleasant, how'd it go? Went well, thanks, and uh, back we went. I discovered that what she did, because this was the beginning of the rush hour, people used to freeload and cheat the system. Okay. King's Cross had four pubs, one, two, three, four. When the tram came to a rest, all these guys that had those sacred 20 minutes before getting home to say, yes, dear, I'm home, in for the beer. And okay. beer was served at the bars with a hose, you know, yeah. like this. Yeah. And uh, anyway, she went after them. She would go into each bar and collect the fares. Oh. She was well known by them all. They, they didn't argue. They paid up. So she got back on the tram with a pouch like this. Yeah. And mine was as thin as a rake, you know, like this. And I, it was all screwed up because I couldn't keep track of the color tickets or yeah. <laughs> so that led to teaching in Australia, which was a wonderful year. Wow. When I left uh, the class, oh, one kid burned a part of the school down, so we had to be removed to an army barracks. Uh, okay. uh, the school was at uh, what was it? Cleveland Street, I think it was. Cleveland Street Boys High School. Okay. So we went out to a lovely place called Erskineville. And the Erskineville had been the site of army barracks or something. Anyway, the classroom was right beside the main line, the railway main line from uh, New South Wales to Victoria State. And in those days, the railway gauges changed at the border because of the threat of the Japanese invasion and you okay. want to make life difficult. Right. So at precisely every hour, something huge would go roaring past this classroom and all the soot from the train <laughs> would come between the cracks of the clapboards and my little class in there took advantage of that and would raise absolute hell while this thing went by and I would try to keep order. And when the smoke cleared, you'd do a quick count to make sure you had the same number that you were responsible for when you set out that day. Yeah. 
<laughs> but the spirit was good. Yeah. And uh, it was a good staff and uh, went back and uh, made friends and uh, had a successful year. And when I left, um, uh, the uh, class gave me a boomerang and it, uh, my name engraved on the back of it. And uh, you may have seen it at uh, Savory, but anyway, it's there. So, you know, it's a long time ago, but uh, wherever they are today, if they're still with us or what happened in their lives, who knows? But for me, it was a privilege to be there. And to learn a different system from what... As a young teacher, yeah. Yeah. So uh, during that time, uh, one of the members of the staff um, uh, had come from uh, Ceylon, as it was called then. And he had been the principal of the the teacher training college in Colombo. His wife had family in Ceylon, and she wanted him out of the house, so he took up a supply job like I had. We became good friends, and... uh, he said, where, where are you going after you leave Australia? I said, ultimately England, but I have booked passage. I want to go across Australia and see all this, do this, do that. So we get, uh, he said, well, when you get to Salon, get off and uh, you stay with us and, uh, and you catch the next boat kind of thing. Well, we're steaming across the Indian Ocean and the ship breaks down, just stop dead in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> Lights out, you know, quiet. It's a bit eerie when you're there. yeah. yeah. And you're thinking, well, if we sink, I'm to be eaten. And, <laughs> yeah, there, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> excuse me. So uh, we got underway, and I got off in Salon, spent time. Yeah, well, we can, uh, <laughs> want to just pause for a second? Time, but it turned out his wife was uh, a relative of the prime minister of uh, Salon. Okay. The family name was uh, Bander Nike, I think. Anyway, so yours truly got the tour of parts of Salon, and uh, then set off on the next boat. Uh, and I got off at uh, Suez and traveled through Egypt to Malta. Mm-hmm. Arrived in England and took up my job with the London County Council in a secondary modern school. Uh, I lasted uh, half a day. <laughs> and there was a knock on the door, and the yeah. uh, inspector or whatever they were in those days said, uh, they want to see you at the at the uh, county office or something. I thought, what's happened? I filled in the register. I issued the milk. That's it. Yeah. They said, no, there's a vacancy. We're sending you to the north side of London and something else. So I went to a second school, and uh, it was uh, um, you know, it was good. It was really old fashioned type of operation, and it was in its last year of operation. It was being moved out to Wimbledon to a beautiful new secondary modern co-educational school. Yeah, okay. And uh, so I uh, was assigned a position there. Uh, It was a term at the other one. And I got to that school only to be told that I was being reassigned to a grammar school, which was further down wherever, and went there and finished the last term. So you, did you have any naval duties on, nothing, while you were in England? Nothing okay. at all. Just, just, no just naval the teaching. Yeah, with yeah. this at all. It was a right. complete void. Yeah. So wherever we were, 1961 or 60, whatever, and uh, I arrived back having traveled to uh, see where all the Alsgards came from in Norway okay. right. and, uh, and uh, into the Soviet Union and a few things like that. Uh, came back, arrived in Powell River, and... Uh, uh, thought, uh, well, I, you know, what's next? And uh, my father was in the weekly newspaper business and had been from the 1930s through until he retired in the 70s. There were three newspapers, Powell River, uh, uh, Gibson's, and Seashelt, uh, I think, on the coast. 
He'd done extremely well, and uh, in his category, uh, his, he'd won every award that uh, a weekly newspaper could win in Canada in 1950-whatever it was, four or something. It was quite a record. And uh, unfortunately, I think to his great shock, his kid didn't have ink in his blood, you know, <laughs> and, uh, whereas his sister did. But uh, uh, so I still had my, I still didn't really know what I wanted to settle down. But anyway, I yeah. worked with him for a couple of years before. When waiting for me at home was a little brown envelope, Department of National Defense. And I opened it and it said, uh, Sub-Lieutenant Alsgaard, it has been noted that you have not fulfilled your obligation for the past three years. Okay. And as such, and then there was a section quoted, and it was as if I would be taken out and disposed of, you yeah. know, and so on. <laughs> and therefore, you shall make the necessary arrangements. And I did. So I right. got, uh, I think, through to Malahat would be here. Okay, in, in, right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, or Discovery, one of the two, whichever. And... Uh, so what all the forms were, very simple. And uh, so through came a, a summer two-week day. And it was to be uh, in the Navigation Direction School and uh, was teaching pilotage and uh, so on. And um, so I got there and uh, met a very interesting fellow who was the officer in charge who I'd not seen before, who appears le much later in this saga and I'll refer to. But, yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I was all set to start, and I was late getting out of the uh, the base that night, and uh, this is the old gate up by the railway tracks. There was no new gate by the, where the gym right, was. Right, off of Squamal Road by the Nelly's old block was yep, brand yep, new and all right. this sort of thing. Okay. So they, they had the cell block there and the old thing. That was mm -hmm. at the end, and anybody that was in there ran around with a boiler suit with a big C on the back. And then the E and N ran back and forth almost across the main gate. Right. And the wardroom was uh, the, the old hospital there. up yeah. the way there. So that's where I was uh, billeted. So I was late. The Commodore's office was just as you came down before you turned right to go out that gate. It may still be there by the old Naden Parade, the old original right. square. Yeah. I'm coming down the slope and the window flew open and it said, you, come here. And you, having... Not much on there. Goes yeah. there quickly. Yeah. And there was one commander, Andrew Collier, okay. who said to me, what do you know about sea cadets? And I said, well, I don't know anything about them, sir. And he said, well, find out. I said, have we lost them? And he said, well, go find out. Come back here tomorrow morning. Slam. <laughs> so you go home, you stay, and you come back in the morning to find out. And I had nothing to report. And he said, I have to tell you this. We have 100 sea cadets coming from west of Winnipeg, to do three courses here. They are bosun, uh, gunnery, and PNRT, I think they were. Okay. So you do the mathematics, and the PNRT got the odd number out, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and all you have to do, because they will come with their own staff and so on, is make very sure that whatever they need here happens. No hiccups. Have you got that? Yes, sir. Right. So I went on with my duties, and they all arrived, and uh, you know I stood there, and uh, they they were doing their thing properly. But I introduced myself, and uh, they knew what my function was, and uh, make sure the boats were down there in the boat shed, and uh, this was there, and that key was there, and uh, um, and just whatever, just so they were not going to be put in the in the back uh, back of the room and forgotten about. Okay. 
So who shows up as the officer in charge of this cadet group? But uh, he was the parade GI at Royal Roads. In the UNTD, we spent one of our summers at... Okay. My second summer was at uh, Royal Roads. Barker was his name. Uh, Barker, anyway, mm -hmm. a formidable guy. But by now, he has retired. Mm -hmm. And he's gone into the Sea Cadet movement, and he's an officer with the cadets. Okay. And he took one look at me, and he said, I thought I taught you better, but he said, just <laughs> you support us well, and we'll just be fine. Thank you very much. So I can remember going up to Beacon Hill Park, near where your mother is, where the, um, the field uh, there. We were practicing a gun run. Okay. Which we would right put on, on the all for, weather field. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which we would put on at the uh, legislature and yeah. so on. Uh, the cadets. Uh, there were three teams, and uh, we had to buy them T-shirts and paint them yeah. with stripes. <laughs> so we knew what the teams were, but they were yeah. good. And uh, uh, Barker trained them beautifully, and uh, and it was really wonderful to see. Well, I had a ticket to drive at my WK and all this sort of thing, so. I could drive the YFPs and Harbourcraft, yeah, right. and uh, so there was the odd day cruise. So the day cruise would be from the boat shed around into the inner harbour and back. Mm -hmm. And I could comment on all the Canadian Pacific ships and all the, you know, just spin a good dip. But uh, something didn't quite sit right, because I really didn't think that's all what sea cadets were there to do, sit on their their butts and, uh, mm -hmm. and get a touring. You know, and really not do very much other than just endure a short ride from A to B. Okay. So that stuck in the back of my head for a while. And uh, anyway, we get through the summer. And uh, they had then what they called area officers uh, who had okay. responsibilities for different regions and in the Pacific. And uh, there was a fellow named uh, uh, Bill Bowditch. He was a lieutenant commander, right. William okay. Watson Bowditch. Mm -hmm. And uh, William Watson Bowditch, uh, I w had gone back to Powell River after this stint and was working. And the local Sea Cadet Corps, RCSCC Malaspina, uh, its, command its commanding officer uh, phoned me and he said, uh, you're back. I said, well, yes. He said, well, come and give us a hand, won't you? And I said, uh, yes, I will. And, of course, that was the first bite. So I looked at all this. I thought, this, this has got real possibility. And the Corps of Officers there at that time were, some were, had wartime experience. And, okay. Uh, but they were enthusiastic. Yeah. And the Corps had 60 or more cadets, and it had the support of the Powell River Company, and whatever it was needed, it got. So uh, one possibility wow. led to another, and Bill Bowditch came around as the, uh, to inspect. It was okay. his responsibility. And he said, uh, what are you doing next summer? I said, well, I'm either working here or I do have 15 days of naval training to do. Yeah. Have I got a deal for you, said Bill. <laughs> so he was here, and back came the 100 cadets. I think by this time we were 150. It was getting bigger and bigger. Okay. And uh, we were in the building, the wooden building, that right below where the chiefs and petty officers mess, you know, where the... Oh, gosh, were they, you know where the, the last parade ground in Naden is, right. obviously. Yeah, so and then that, below that was the parade ground number two. Okay. And parade ground number one was over by the old entrance. Okay. Well, there was the chief and petty officer's mess. Right. And below that was a wooden building, and that was HMCS Malahat. Right, just on the on the cliffs facing yes, down to the water. Yes, yeah, yeah. And down below was, uh, they had uh, a great uh, uh, rope loft down there and all that sort of thing, and... Uh, 
But this was where Bowditch was headquartered and from where he ran the summer program. And uh, so, again, where a few more officers were now attached from the Naval Reserve to support the program. But uh, the course has gone on uh, and did it remarkably well. And uh, my responsibility was Bowditch's EA existed, uh, or XO, I guess, or whatever it was called then. So uh, he, so, he uh, ran the camp in Naden then? No, it wasn't a camp in Naden. Okay. It, it was yeah. before any of that had come to pass. Okay. It was just a presence yes. of sea okay. cadets. Yeah. And uh, so I would take them out in the, uh, the YAP. I'd take them over to the then ABCD school or yeah. NBCD or whatever yeah. now. And rather than wait for the blue boat, I had the YAP. 310, which used to double at night for the uh, uh, emergency uh, boat, okay. whose duty it was to go around and try to capture HMC ships. <laughs> you sneak aboard and place a bomb on the quartermaster's desk. Oh, okay. And the yeah. quartermaster would be keelhauled the following morning. And uh, if he wasn't, if he was sleeping, if he was still around, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or hadn't fled by then. So I would just transport the cadets over and back, and, and uh, one thing would lead to another. And uh, I wasn't going to drive it. They're going to drive it. They're going to make it go. And that's their job. My mm -hmm. job is to make sure that it doesn't run aground and, yes. uh, and so on. But yeah. other than that, so we'd take a little bit of time and they could get out there and make it go, make it stop. And uh, we'd tow a whaler back and forth, do little exercises. And I'm thinking, this is where it's really about. And we need a bigger place. Yeah. So... Uh, we get to the next year, and uh, Bowditch is still there. This is 1962, and I'm right. back doing the same thing for the same period. And then the third year, Bowditch is sent to Quadra as its commanding officer. Yeah, now he only did one year as That's the captain, correct. right? Yeah. And yeah. The, he relieved a man named Gledo, okay. Ray, Raymond Lawrence Gledo. And uh, Gledo became Bowditch's replacement, and I was Gledo's uh, exo. Okay, all right. And uh, it was a change, and uh, I'd just gotten used to Bill Bowditch, and I thought, oh, God, I've got to train another one. And uh, <laughs> So uh, I thought, maybe this is going to go well, maybe it is, but we hit it off. Good. And uh, uh, so I thought, well, this is the end of it. And um, uh, I, I took the YFP that year, and I thought, we're going to go somewhere this time. And I headed off for uh, Kinkham Inlet. I thought, let's get up there and show the cadets what the coast looks like, really. And yeah. The interesting thing about that time, I was uh, ordered into Powell River to pick up an Anglican priest who happened to be uh, an air cadet officer whose name, of all things, was Powell. Oh, really? Eric okay. Powell. Yeah. And uh, I was to take Eric Powell to uh, near to Alert Bay and to transfer him to uh, the Columbia Mission Boat, to the Anglican Mission Boat, Columbia, which carried a doctor and a nurse and head on board. It uh, did a lot with the First Nation. All up and down the coast. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so Eric was being transported back to uh, the Kingcom village because he had, I guess, at one time been a, a priest there or whatever. I don't know if you've heard of a book called I Heard the Owl Call My Name. But anyway, this is a, a mythical account of a of an of a Anglican minister Okay. Uh, that... Uh, really does well in a situation that's very critical. And uh, what the author's name, Craven, something. Margaret Craven. Thank you, yes. So uh, uh, it's based, uh, it's a fiction, but they, it, it, Eric is the sort of key person. He's the guy around they build the story. Okay. Yeah. And that's essentially why he's there. I didn't know all this until much later. 
But a British actor named uh, Courtney, Tom Courtney, uh, played the lead role in that film. And they were came the next year and made a movie of it and whatever. Mm -hmm. So knowing nothing, but I had the YFP and uh, uh, we get to, uh, <clears throat> the Kingdom River comes down ahead of the inlet, of course. And at the end of that, there's a lovely big uh, floodplain and... Uh, the Indian agent, uh, the Holiday Farm, was there. The old Holiday had been Indian agent since the creation uh, of all of this by none other than Israel Powell, who we'll not talk about today, but uh, <laughs> that's a whole other event that's yeah. coming on, uh, and uh, ran the shop from there. And uh, it was not the nicest thing, and that's we'll not dwell with that type of thing. But uh, right. anyway, I... Um, Although there's no way I'm going anywhere near the fresh end of that river because who knows what's coming down there at a great speed and wooden hull yeah. vessels that don't suffer field. well no, right. that. So we had to tie to the cliff. We Fortunately, there was a little float which the local fishers used and I was able to put her alongside there and, uh, and down came the chief, a very young Stanley Hunt and uh, oh, Carver right. and, uh, yeah. in, a, in a canoe and with a outboard on the back end and... Uh, and uh, with the freshette and the speed he had, it was, for those days, light speed yeah. from the village to where we were. Came alongside, and he wanted to, to take me and to take uh, Eric Powell and uh, uh, one or two others up to have a look-see. And uh, I declined at that moment. I was not too keen. I was conscious of I wanted to be sure the, the ship was okay. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was prepared to sacrifice the XO and, uh, <laughs> and uh, any other person. And, yeah. uh, and I have uh, films. It's in right, there. Right, in I the think collection. If it's yeah. not in there, it's in the period, the ones you're yet to get. Okay, right. Which will account for this period. Uh -huh. And uh, off they go. You know, the terrified-looking XO sitting in the eyes of the canoe and Eric Powell sitting there as, oh, God, would lift him out of there at a moment's notice. Um. And the rest of us were all invited ashore, which we were taken ashore by little fisher, uh, well, not little, by small uh, uh, trawlers or whatever they were, to the farm, where, of course, we were fed royally, you know, and uh, the cadets couldn't believe their luck. And, of course, uh, a large family, and uh, the women just took to these cadets, you know, like their own kids. Yeah. And they just, I could just tell, uh, you know, they, uh, I had to take notice of the fact of how they were treated there and how come that standard wasn't upheld out there. And I thought, you can keep thinking that, but don't express it. <laughs> and uh, they gave them a wonderful barbecue. Right. And, oh, nice. of course, that's all there on film to yeah, see. Yeah. Can I ask you, uh, did Esquimalt know you took their YFP or... How did you sign it out? <laughs> there are bounds of knowledge beyond which perhaps it's uh, not proper to pass, I okay. guess. And, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, the uh, forget her number, but whatever it is. But the, anyway, we, <laughs> so uh, we uh, we get through all of this. It's time right. to set sail. And I thought, well, we're not going. We had I had all sorts of little drills planned. We do the man overboard and the emergency steering and uh, lay out the cable and fire the flares and... Uh, Everything that they could possibly do, they had to do. So they had a real spirit of ownership. That uh, They weren't just there as passengers. They worked that ship. Right. And that was really the, the beginning of an idea that would come a few years later that would manifest in, uh, in Quadro. So uh, we sail back. Uh, 
I think we were gone about 18 days or whatever it was. And wow. uh, I, I remember putting into Alert Bay. That's, um, and uh, the YFPs in those days were very primitive. Oh, yeah. I, I think we were, that one had. Did he even really have any cookies? or hammocks. Yeah, uh, yeah I was going to say. Uh, the Venture Organization had uh, uh, squired three of them out and fitted them out to okay. uh, be Orioles sort of uh, vanguard. Yeah. And the fellow running that down there, a man named Joe Prosser, uh, was in charge of the barge. Well, Joe Prosser, when I went to, to sea as a UNTD, six weeks after arriving in Halifax, the beginning of May, was our sea training officer. And I couldn't believe, here's Joe Prosser, who used to run the feet off of me as a two-and-a-half <laughs> running the feet off all the venture cadets. Yeah. So I think it was one of his that I stole. Whatever it was, we were well-equipped, and uh, we had a, a reasonable galley. We could we could work. Well, it, to be able to go for 18 days. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you had to replenish here yeah, and there. We yeah. had that arrangement and yeah. so on. Um, but I, we put into Alert Bay and uh, had a little problem with the uh, the plumbing, and things weren't working too well. There were two rules aboard the YFP. One, there was a limited amount of water. Uh, so you learned all about the principles of bird bathing. Yeah. And uh, secondly, the ship's head was a unique device that was designed for two things. It was designed for what you produce and what Her Majesty the Queen provides. And if you do anything to cause that to fail, you are held responsible. And I don't have the time to determine who might be responsible for this. The first person I lay eyes on the minute I have a report is guilty. And that's justice at sea. So get rid of any other ideas of what you might have. So it only took two or three dismantlings of the, uh, the heads in YFPs. And that was the end of that problem for as long as I was ever near them. But I'm sure to this day there are probably two or three hundred experts out there on how to dismantle one of those manual pump heads oh, yeah. aboard. I remember many times. Yeah. So uh, we put into Alert Bay and... Uh, uh, it was very nicely greeted by the mayor and uh, by the the chief. And, right. um, and I explained that, uh, was there anybody that perhaps could had a little expertise and could help us with this? And, oh, yes, don't worry about that. We'll come and do what we can. And they did, and they fixed it. it was, they had little hot water bogies on board, and sometimes the, the relays used to go wrong, and uh, so he fixed it for us. In the meantime, I said, look, my uh, ship's company is in desperate need of a good wash. And uh, if you have any appreciation for four or five days of enclosed space, I think you can sympathize with me. And he said, no problem at all. I can help you. So yeah. we put them all ashore, and they were marched off up to the residential school, St. Okay. Michael's School yeah. it was. There were no students there. The school was out for a holiday or whatever it was. Anyway, they went in, and they were duly dealt with. And I looked out, and down the roadway come these brilliantly polished young people who Looking came back clean. aboard, poster ready. Yeah. So that was good for another five days run, you know. And yeah. uh, <laughs> they learned a lot about hygiene, and yeah. and uh, mom wasn't there to pick up after you. So be it. So anyway, we make back to Esquimalt and get on with it. That ends. Yeah. We get back to Powell River for the next year. And I had put in, what was that called? A gnat trap. That stood for Naval Training Application. Okay. Not yeah. bad, eh? Yeah. Mm. The, uh, <laughs> so the NATRAP went in, and it came back and announced that uh, I would be going to uh, one of the minesweepers. And, uh, and I thought, okay, that sounds great. And the minesweeper was to have been HMCS James Bay, hull number 152. Okay. <laughs> 
commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander John C. Hobbs. Mm. Fortune and James Bay had gone into refit, and both were sold oh. as no longer required. Right. So John Hobbs no longer had a command. So he was immediately made Area Officer Sea Cadets Pacific. Yeah. And I'm in Powell River, and John Hobbs comes to Powell River on his first inspection, took one look at me, and he said, you're going to be my XO at Quadra just for six weeks, he said. I said, well, if that's what you want, I'm happy to do that. Right. So at that time, it's uh, April of 1964, Quadra is uh, looked after by uh, uh, Pop Tribe, Mr. Tribe, whose son Wally Tribe worked there as well. And Pop Tribe had been a commanding officer way back in the 20s or something, RCSCC Rainbow in Victoria. Right. I remember the the name now. And there he was in this picture and so on. Uh, But here he was living in this desolate windblown spit yes. in Comox Harbor in his shack with his dog. Yeah. And uh, he, has, he was to look after the security of the buildings, whatever. So uh, our job was to get up there on the 1st of April, a very important date, <laughs> to make it ready for the 30th of June or something for the first intake of the big sea cadet thing. Okay. And I looked at that place and I thought, I can't believe what I'm looking at. I'm looking at these old buildings that had survived the Second World War through all the, you know, HMCS Naden II and mm-hmm. Givenchy and mm-hmm. uh, combined operations and, uh, and the, uh, all the, uh, the firing points for the Royal Navy during the uh, musketry days of the 1850s and 60s. Right. Full of history, but full of sand and full of desolation. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. So I remember opening the door to one building and the sand had blown in underneath. It was an awful mess. Yeah. You know, that, that stale smell of a building closed without any kind of real airing. And we had, what, six weeks to get this thing going. So uh, the, uh, we were assigned 60 regular force personnel from the fleet wow. as a ship's company. Okay. And I remember the message going out, XOs are required to identify X numbers of persons uh, to be made available, and the draft will be to, because HMCS Quadra was a self-accounting unit. Right. Um, so all our finances, were ha- we looked after that and so on. So the names come in, and of course, when you get a general message like that in the fleet, what XO of what ship isn't going to send every bird aboard that ship off as quick as possible, <laughs> and guess who got them all? Right. So every bandit in the fleet is in this smiling, innocent little group from, you know, uh, ordinary seamen to leading hand. And uh, But fortunately came a couple of good P2s and, and a P1, and they gave me a coxswain, a, a chief, okay. a proper coxswain. Yeah. Lynch was his name. Good name for this lot. <laughs> chief Petty Officer Lynch, and he meant it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, of course, they got to work, and we turned to, and we did what you do, all the husbandry that was necessary. And, and uh, we uh, applied for, we said, uh, we could paint all the, th- the three buildings. Um, as I recall, there was uh, the three accommodation blocks, uh, A, B, and C, I think they were. And, uh, and then there was a breezeway at the back, and uh, the original building left behind by the Royal Navy. Yes. And uh, which was the admin building. Yeah. And the XO's office was on the end of this leaning building. 
me. Yes, yes. John Hobbs lived in the, the most permanent, best building of all, mm -hmm. which housed a wardroom, and uh, I think there were cabins in there for about eight officers. Right. And uh, so on. So anyway, uh, we uh, said, you give us the paint, we'll paint those three buildings. And, and they did. And uh, you never saw so much white paint fly around in your life. <laughs> and I'm sure the way it was applied to the buildings lasted for years. But anyway, there they were. It was put on thick. You bet. And uh, <laughs> so came the day when the cadets would arrive. And they had this peculiar thing of cadets would come for two weeks. And uh, they came from, uh, I think, just west of Winnipeg initially. They were, where, I'd have to check that somewhere. Mm. I know eventually there was another one, uh, Acadia, I think they called it. It was right. down on the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, they came and... Uh, who was going to look after these cadets? Well, you would have a what they called a two-weeky officer who would often come from the Corps or a Corps. Yeah. It would be the divisional officer for these cadets. Yes. Okay, well, who's going to teach these cadets? And what are we going to teach them? And we're not going to spend all day marching them around. That's not what they're here for. Yeah. So we had to uh, devise a program. And the first year was pretty shaky, but uh, we cobbled together enough where we could... Uh, at least get into the boats, such as they were. And the boats officer that uh, first year was Wally Tribe Jr. Okay. And there hadn't been that much uh, money put into the care and maintenance of the one, two, three, four classes of boats. There was something called a sea cadet dinghy, yeah. which the Navy League of Canada bought and paid for. And I think there were about 12 of those or maybe more of them. And then came what were called the AP dinghies, the Admiralty Pattern dinghies. Yeah. And then came the Admiral Repair Whalers. And then the most beautiful one of all was the 32-foot cutter, of which I think we had three at that time, four. And they'd been allowed, they would haul them up uh, in front of Fred Varney's uh, shipwright shop. And there they'd sit on the grass for the, uh, for the season mm -hmm. uh, at the mercy of the, uh, the, the winds and the gods yeah. and you name it. And, mm -hmm. of course, wood bolts, clicker holes, all sorts of things happened. So mm -hmm. it was pretty... Pretty makeshift, get them ready to put them in the water. And you put them in the water hoping they would fill with water so they might take up. Yeah, they swell and up. And then be, yeah, serviceable. And then Wally's job was to get on and get them ready and make sure they were rigged and checked and so on. And the stuff had deteriorated, but it was usable. And I was satisfied uh, that I could say to uh, John, the, the captain, John Hobbs, uh, you know, they were safe and we would have the ability to, uh, to escort them when they were out there. So we... We got through that. Mm -hmm. And I came away from that summer thinking, you know, uh, gosh, there's a, there's a real challenge here. I come back to Powell River, to uh, Malaspina, and, uh, which by now is a growing core. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, we, we did our uh, early part of the fall trading. And it was always nice to have a little get-together at New Year's and uh, the officers and... Uh, and uh, one or two people, there was a new group of teachers in Powell River at that time. Powell River was big schools and so on. And mm -hmm. So I was invited to a cocktail party and, uh, of course, a New Year's party. And there I met a very interesting guy and uh, who came over to me rather annoyed. And he said, you know, I tried to join something called the Sea Scouts the other day. And uh, I'm a scouter from England and I've gone all the way through the ranks to the top of all of this. I've done my national service. And I was an intelligence officer in the National Service, and uh, I want to help out. And I was told to go away. And it turned out this was scouts, not cadets. Uh -huh. 
So I said, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and uh, about two weeks later, this particular individual had been whipped in and given the uh, induction treatment, the medical and the uh, uniform, and suddenly was there as a sub-lieutenant or whatever it was. Yeah. And, uh, and that individual was that boy's dad over here. All right. Mr. Greenwood, see you? You bet, yeah. Yeah, Frank Weston Greenwood. That's, uh, you know, sir, when I, uh, when I was the national president of the Navy League, I was pretty honored to come to Frank's, uh, service that you spoke at. And, uh, I, I really think, you know, yourself and Frank both did so much for the CQDEP program, uh, in, in Canada. And, uh, it, it's great that we're capturing this and we're talking about you and, and him and, and many others, obviously that, that have done great service to Canada and, and, to youth in Canada. So uh, I'm glad we touched on this. Um, but anyway, we're going to tell more about the story. But uh, so you got Frank involved. and uh, Yes, it did. Yes. And uh, of course, uh, in, a, in a summary, the rest is history. And uh, But you know that uh, you could see the chemistry coming together here. And uh, we agreed flatly that sea cadets belong at sea and, uh, and it should be sea orientated and so on. And let's get on with it. Well, other problems attending all of this would be once again year two as XO. And how do we man Quadra? Where do I get my ship's working mm -hmm. hands? And there weren't enough people left in the fleet to give up anymore. Um, so we looked at our uh, senior cadets, the uh, chief petty officers particularly, and a lot of them came out expecting to do what they had done in the past, and uh, but they were both capable of instructing and working mm -hmm. and willing to do so. Mm -hmm. So it was a Mickey Mouse summer, but we got through. But what's happening at this point is the coming together of a whole new group of personalities who I think instinctively are seeing what can be done here. So then I think of many names. I've got to be so careful with them, but uh, Mel Douglas comes to mind and... Uh, you know, with Steen Anderson, and uh, oh, I'll get to many more of them, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so on. But um, but they all have talents. They know what to do, and they're natural teachers. And this is what they want to do. So they inspire. I think the boat shed was the beginning of where I really saw it. I saw Anderson take charge. Uh, they weren't young cadets. They were young men. This they're eighteen years old at this mm -hmm. point, right at mm -hmm. the end of the pipe. But and they're prepared and mature enough to be able to get on and and uh, and teach, not bully young people and do it in an impressive manner that, you know, hey, when you get to be 18, you can do that too. So then why don't we really call a deal a deal here and make it fair? Let's find a way uh, to uh, to pay these people properly or pay them something, you know, not $100, but $300 for their work in the summer. Mm -hmm. And how are we going to do that? Well, uh, the... Uh, you know, the intricacies of budgeting and, and to, to trace thought patterns in Ottawa vice the reality of, uh, of the uh, coalface in Comox yeah. is in itself a master's uh, thesis and uh, so on. <laughs> but um, it was decided we should enroll them into the Naval Reserve in the rank of leading seamen. Well, the Naval Reserve did a little harumphing and so on, because, you know, from zero to leading seaman, which took 
a, a normal reserve intake, uh, five, six years or more, whatever trade training to get to, didn't go down well. But the people down there said, and uh, that's the way it's going to be, and this is the uniform they're going to wear. They're going to wear the proper uniform, they're going to have the red Canada flashes, and they're going to have a red hook. Okay. No good conduct badge, ain't they? Red hook. Mm -hmm. And a cap tally. That I think read initially HMCS Naden or something, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took one look at that. And without any authority whatsoever, went over to John Hobbs and said, Sir, I think we need to do something about this. Agree, do it. And uh, so down came the Red Canada flashes and the hooks, and up went their chief petty officer ranks and the tag on the top here, uh, Royal Canadian Sea Cadets. Mm -hmm. And the cap tally, I think, was HMCS or something, or mm -hmm. whatever. And they were paid at the rate of a leading seaman in the Naval Reserve. And we had to identify them. We had to call them some, not leading seaman or what. You were called what your rank was, and it? You, you worked hard to get to that rank. So you deserve recognition. I remember going over to the Eaton store on Fifth Street in Courtney, and I was looking for a distinct color. And I saw a bolt of orange cloth, and I bought the whole bolt. Brought it back, and I remember from the Cornwallis days and so on, when the new entries used to wear their divisional colored patches. That's the key. That's it. So uh, I'll tell you, there were 30 or 40-some young men that had to, if they didn't know how to sew, learn to sew pretty quickly into a triangle patch of certain specifications and put it on your right shoulder. I think it was worn both shoulders, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first colored patch that appeared at, uh, at Quadra, and that was OJT, and that meant something. Absolutely. Well, when uh, younger cadets are looking at insignia, which is important, I think, at that stage of one's life, it's important any time, why, why do they have that color? And I don't have any colored patches, and I'm somebody too, even though I'm a coarse cadet. I'm not a working hand, per se. I want to be identified. So they had a thing at that point. There was, uh, now what was that officer's name? Uh, he was a da Danish fellow. Um, oh, God, he had a dog. And uh, first thing he did was take leave and go back to Denmark and leave the dog with me. Uh, <laughs> a big, it was one of the um, oh, German the shepherd, shepherd dogs. Yeah, I remember the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, Ben was the dog's name. Goddard was this guy's name. And okay. Goddard was, uh, he was actually a supply officer, and he'd been attached to Quadra as uh, the money man at that particular point. Uh, so uh, uh, anyway, uh, we, they, they, he was responsible for, they called them advanced leaders or whatever it was. It was some kind of a thing that I think he put together I, I didn't ever did quite understand it. The idea being that they did a lot of phys ed training, and they they were kind of a, like an elite group mm -hmm. that uh, were very capable, yeah. but were sort of put on display uh, for the open houses were there. So they do running around doing handsprings and so on. <clears throat> and this is not to discredit it. It was all about, I guess, physical education. Well, it was about physical yeah. education. And I, I'm not about to put that down as far as the cadet because it was their thing and yep. they needed to yep. show it. But they did other jobs as a kind of supplementary uh, to instruction and so on. But I thought, uh-huh, this looks like an opportunity for leadership, uh, some form of leadership training here. So let's, uh, let's see about that. And uh, there were some good minds around and there were some great cadets at the top of their game at that time. 
who, when invited to come forward with suggestions, did that. And there were four of them out of Winnipeg, eventually. Uh, uh, young uh, Lofto, yep. uh, and uh, 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 there was a Ferguson. Bob Ferguson. And don't, yeah, don't help me, just give me a minute here. Ferguson, uh, oh dear God, there, there were, anyway, there were, I see them, uh, Kell. Wayne Kell. Wayne Kell, yes, yep. that was it. Good voice. And uh, what else? And there was one other, um, I think, Stuart. It'll come to me. Anyway, here they were. And they were very creative individuals. They each had a gift, as so many of these, uh, these people had. But uh, I think they kind of took a look at themselves, took a look at what they'd been through, and took a look at what they could do to someone else. So they were tasked to get on with it. And uh, the, this course would be called Practical Leadership, PL. Right. Right. It adopted as its, uh, its uh, mascot, Flag Lima, and everywhere you went were the colors yellow and black. And to this day, be prepared, I'm sure. Oh, well, yeah. I was just confronted this morning by some <laughs> of the stuff, but anyway. So they developed the course, and the course was to be based on the principle of outward bound. Yeah. Well, the course, and I have to just step back a minute because playing a real role behind the scene is something called the overnight sale. And this is to... Uh, well, even before that, there was, uh, in, the, in that first disastrous year, not disastrous, but first unusual year, they had a thing called Tree Island. Yes. And uh, Tree Island seemed to be the um, uh, the preserve of uh, a group that had their own little training program and so on, and uh, it belonged to Quadra and, and so on. And I, well, I'm going to find out what goes on out there. And I went yeah. out and I found out and I changed that. Uh -huh. very quickly, and uh, this was the beginning of what was called the overnight sale, right. which was to put the cadets in the cutters, give them enough to survive, get out there, be supervised, and go to Tree Island, and here's what you do when you're there. Mm -hmm. And to do competitive drills with the cutters, up sail, down sail, overboard, do this, do that, whatever you could think of, and to create a program. I'm not creating, you create the program. Lieutenant Greenwood, mm -hmm. Lieutenant Douglas, the rest mm -hmm. of them, and that's all you had to say. And boy, did they ever. So I, one day, it was a good southeaster, and I looked out and I saw them coming back from Tree Island. And I thought, what are you doing coming back? There's wind. Get out there. and The <laughs> sea is roaring. So I went down to the head of the jetty, and I stood there. And the motor sea boat, which was accompanying them, is the safety, uh, safety number. Yeah. Frank Greenwood is standing up in the eye of the bows and uh, looking out like that, looking furious. Douglas is in the back hoping not to be noticed. And I'm standing there and I said, what are you doing here? It's too windy or too rough or too and I were all wet and so on. I said, get back to sea right now. Turn about and get back there. I want that in writing. You shall have it writing in writing and I shall write it across your anatomy for you if necessary. And they turned and went. He was furious. And when they did come back at the time they were supposed to, I thought he would never speak or we'd never talk again. Nothing was said. That was the end of that. There was never another incident about what the weather was like. And don't you dare lose anybody, let alone damage any of the equipment. Right. The cadets we can replace. But you know how much a cutter costs? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, so this then evolved into the ideas. Uh, and from the practical leadership and the outward bound came the idea 
that, ah, sitting down in Esquimalt were all sorts of things in that auxiliary group of vessels that are just waiting to be attacked. Yeah. So uh, the Queen's Harbor Master was uh, the military guy responsible for those vessels, and over in QHM itself was a civilian guy, Johnny, his name will come, big tall guy, a, a wonderful guy, who really believed in the idea that the cadets belonged and would support. He said, I'll give you what I can. Do you have people qualified to run the vessel? And I said, yes, I have. And for those that aren't, they can, I'll use, they can use my ticket and I'll pay the price, which was not the thing to do, but <laughs> that's what you did. Yeah. So that gathered up a couple more YFPs that were sitting there as unused blue boats. Yeah. Uh, a YMU, which was used to ferry the, uh, the civilian people over, like the food services people. Okay. And that was manned by a dockyard employee because that was a union job. Mm -hmm. And uh, so because we had no roadway to Quadra in those days. So it was really good to get all of that, uh, that functioning. And so now we had three YFPs. And now we need to talk about developing a program. Well, in the, uh, in the naval training program at sea, we had what were called sea recs, sea requirements. You had to know everything about your ship from truck to keel, and you had to complete this during the time you were at sea. I did mine in one of the old frigates, and uh, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to rewrite that to suit a YFP, and you're going to know everything there is to know about YFP from the very button at the top to the mm -hmm. the deepest uh, uh, cork in the, in the keel there, and so on. <laughs> So we drafted that, and that was what they had to do, first of all, was out they go for the bosun training or whatever it was. Yeah. But it needs a role. I mean, we're just not out there doing that. you got to do something. People are paying money for these things to run. So we offered ourselves up as a kind of assistance to the Canadian Coast Guard, who were quick to say, we welcome the presence, and these are the limits we ask you to operate in, and this is how you can coordinate our response to your presence. And we did that through Comox Coast Guard Radio, yeah. with whom we now had become great friends, and everybody knew everybody by voice and so on. Yeah. So we had a training conference in Vancouver. We used to go, we hired some uh, hotel or something down there, and there would be 50 or 60 officers would be brought from wherever to spend a long weekend, four and a half days, to talk about the next summer's training program in Quadra and develop the course training plan yeah. and lay it out so that when you came there, there it was on the bulkhead. And if you were in that class, you knew what you were going to be doing and you knew who your instructor was. Yeah. So at that point, uh, new things, uh, new positions uh, were created. And the first one to be created was to be called the flotilla. And it would require an officer in the rank of lieutenant commander. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frank had enough seniority at this time, plus he had gone and qualified himself here, yeah. and uh, and so on. So he was uh, selected by the Commander Sea Cadets, uh, Commander uh, Donald Sabiston. I don't that name okay. is a bell, yeah. whose son later served uh, as an OJT, an officer cadet, and was commissioned, and then went into the regular force and uh, right. retired uh, uh, as a job in Ottawa somewhere. Mm -hmm but had also been in my year at the National Defense College in Kingston, was the uh, flag lieutenant to the admiral, the okay. commandant. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Sabiston uh, approved the appointment of Frank Greenwood, or they approved the appointment. 
to which uh, John Hobbs uh, made the announcement uh, that the following officers would be promoted. There were three, I think, that were promoted, Frank, and a training officer, and there was one other that they appointed. Anyway, so the flotilla was born, yes. and he got his own pennant, too. Oh, okay. He got a flot pennant, you yep. know, which he was to fly at the peak. Right. And wherever he was present, he was to carry this thing with him. So in the first year, he had to organize, what do you do with a flotilla? That was his task. Yeah. Go do something. Find a role to play. But here is your center role as an assistant to the Coast Guard. Yeah. So they created these things called, they had uh, group, uh, group North, uh, Group uh, South, and uh, this almost sounded like, uh, you know, the, uh, the Luftwaffe or something, <laughs> and it's air fleets over yeah, yeah. England in the war, but... Uh, Anyway, these groups, Group North was the big one. It had the uh, most assets because the most traffic was there. This mm -hmm. is Desolation Sound and so yeah. on. Summer tourism, fires and breakdowns and heart attacks, you name it. So be there, help the people and uh, call the Coast Guard and they took it over. And they earned many commendations in the summer, letters of appreciation, all this kind of stuff and so on. So he went on developing that. And uh, and uh, also keeping a close eye on the overnight sail because it was uh, at sea off the base premises. Mm -hmm. And the fleet had to expand because more and more requirements. So by this time, the assets of uh, the naval assets were running low. There wasn't anything left. All of a sudden, people had discovered that YAPs were valuable vessels. And they were trying to claim them back. Uh -oh. <laughs> this is how we play the game, boys. Right. And uh, the game held. So you became as popular as a skunk at a picnic sometimes in the dockyard uh, because of the here he comes, you know, lock the doors and for heaven's sake, tell them they're all in, tell them something. Yeah. But I left with what I came for and with the wonderful cooperation of the people who made sure that they rescheduled the refits of those YFPs so that they weren't out of service during the summer months. Not ready to go. Yeah, so we were done. We taught them how to repaint them in the uh, gray one, one, two, and one, two, one, six, one, eight, yeah, or one, nine, whatever they were. Yeah. So they had light hull, uh, light hull and proper super, and the YFP designation disappeared, and they just became bold numbers in the 300 class, painted yes. like pennants properly on the ship's sides, right on the waist, and so on. So that gave them a nice standing. And I remember thinking, well, they needed something else, too. And I thought, I used to watch from Comox, the aircraft fly over with the big red bands around them. And I thought, that looks nice. So that was the beginning of the red stripe down yes, the bows yes. of all those vessels. So we went up and took all the red paint away from CFP Comox <laughs> and used it on our YFPs. And I think the, the Coast Guard liked that, too, because oh, it was visible. Right? They did, yes. Yeah, yeah. And they had to have a stripe, so they yeah. went for white but yeah. uh, and red hulls. But uh, yeah. anyway, there we were. So the red stripe became the mark of uh, valor and honor and all that good stuff. <laughs> and to sometimes the annoyance of the odd sea, uh, uh, odd person in the dockyard, but they weren't theirs anymore, so now they belong to us. But we ran out of vessels, and I had uh, a couple of merchant sea uh, captains, merchant uh, uh, masters, uh, who were also uh, officers in the corps. Lonsdale was a uh, okay. prepper corps. Yeah. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, yeah. well-known on this coast, master, mariner. I've had him yell at me a few times yeah. over the years. Yeah. Who actually bought a tug called the Malaspina, named it, no, it was the Malaspina Straits. It became the Straits Cadet. Uh -huh. He bought it and then don't uh, uh, loaned it to the Navy each summer. Uh, but uh, we needed more. So he knew everybody in the business. 
And then there was this remarkable guy who was a chief warrant officer, first class Royal Canadian Air Force, named Red Fullerton. Uh-huh. And Red Fullerton retired from the regular force. And the next day he was Lieutenant Fullerton uh-huh. and uh, was now attached to the flotilla and uh, was one of the drivers. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he and Cease Rhodes had their contacts. Uh, they clicked. So they would go shopping in November and January, and they would take me along. And shopping meant Vancouver and out to the Rivto Straight, out to the Rivto Towing Company and the right. Straits Towing Company. And a family who were very generous, the Kozulich family, uh, who owned all of this and, uh, and would do anything for the cadets. Basically, you, what do you want? Uh, just don't wreck it, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they're engineers, but other than. Yeah. So we'd go around and, uh, you know, and the cease would look over there and what do you think about that one and what about this one? So we would get the, uh, uh, the Nitnat was one. There was the Fury Straits, um, the Queen, mm-hmm. um, the Viking King. Uh, I don't know if we were, there was, to, no, we had the Fury Straits and then we, were, then we were going to take the Charlotte. Anyway, here they were. Yeah. Up to Quadra they come, and within two days they are now gray. Uh, And they have numbers and red stripes on them. (laughs) And you can imagine the comments because the toes toes going south, you know, they all know each other. It's a very tight fraternity. Uh And you'd hear the odd thing, is that the Fury? You know, Cease, is that you? This is Lieutenant Rhodes here, George. (laughs) You know, and this is, and so on. Uh. Well, you know... So we were picked off by the boat spotters out there, right. but it looks smart. In there, you'll see them. And right. um, so here was Frank in command of all of this, and of course Frank needed more support because his fleet was everywhere. So he had an aircraft at his disposal, a chartered uh, thing from Island Air out of Campbell River, and any tank Frank needed to get out there. Yeah, he phoned the number, and within half an hour, this Cessna would land in Comox Harbor. Frank would step aboard, display his mini pennant outside the aircraft, where they would go. <laughs> and he'd fly around and look at the fleet. And, of course, Sis really got ears and antenna up all over the place. How can they do this? Yeah. Well, you do it, and that answers the question. So that's it. <laughs> so it went on to a roaring success. And I know when I left in 72, it was going strong. And uh, whatever, you know, when you leave, you leave. Well, it's great to hear the sort of the uh, impetus to these these you know all those successes for for me as a young flotilla yeah. officer. I I drove seas roads yeah. boats too, yeah. Yeah. and I I never heard so many of the stories relating to the whole tugboat uh, connection. But that makes a lot of sense. Well, you had your own command, and you yeah. can experience yeah. you know right. the yeah. the possibility of that. Yeah. I remember the largest capture out of the dockyard was the tug. Uh, I was after the uh, Saint Anthony. Okay. Uh, and it was a go, but she had some crisis with something. So they said, well, you can have the Heatherton instead, which was a little smaller. Yeah. Uh, so we took her, and Red Fullerton drove her for a summer and sure. ran over an American in uh, Squirrel Cove. <laughs> uh, and the American was at fault. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, there was an inquiry about all of this and, and so on, uh, but the Heatherton kept going. Yeah. And uh, eventually the Admiral uh, had come up uh, and went to sea with the flotilla, and they were up in Squirrel Cove, yeah. and uh, I, he, he knew about this. I don't think the Admiral, was it Charles, whichever one it was in. Anyway, 
you lot really ought to keep track of yourselves, you know. But the, uh, the, um, so Reds and the Heatherton, the Admiral's up there with him. And uh, the Admiral turned to Red and said, well, tell me, uh, Red, what really did happen out here? So there's Red smoking a cigarette. Uh-huh. Foot goes up in the gunnel of the Heatherton. Cap goes flat aback. Well, Admiral, it was like this. And, uh, you know, and I think that uh, how it was told, and, uh, and I don't think that Admiral ever forgot, that when Red hit something, it wasn't his fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that. So on these great ships plied, and uh, yeah. I had gone thinking, oh, the flotilla, would, that's the way it was going to be. But things change, and yeah. times change. But nonetheless, uh, that was good. And to watch the other trades' courses come along, and to know that you were there for a purpose, and you mentioned earlier about uh, the value of the people who went and were Quadra and your alumni association. Mm -hmm. I think I will. I don't know if I still have a pin or whatever, but I dearly love to know and see some of them again. But mm -hmm. uh, well, all of them. No, no one's ex well, exempt. Well, I can but, I can uh, tell you, even even in the creation of this podcast, I've interviewed a lot of people who speak about the mentors that they uh, had the opportunity to to, to learn from. And you, your name comes up a lot, sir. Obviously, you were there in the development all this time. But it's you know those people were my mentors. That so it's kind of the nice connection that the Quadra system and the alumni has has created for us, where someone thirty, forty years younger still has a connection to to the system. And yeah. you know, you've described your 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 history as a teacher, and Frank was a teacher, and so many of my colleagues that I went to Quadra with. We're also teachers, and I, I, it's such an interesting connection. How many people, their their winter job was a teacher and their summer job was a teacher at yeah. Quadra. So uh, I think that's one of the connections that I find very strong. Yeah. And even if uh, I was never a teacher, but certainly, yeah, I, I enjoyed teaching cadets, what I'd learned as a cadet. Well, it was a privilege. It was a beautiful opportunity yeah. to see many things happen. And to see those people who would come there to be the, um, the staff and so on were, as you remarked, truly remarkable. And uh, wherever they are to this day, you know, I'm sure that the contribution has been just super. Right. And it caused them to grow as well and to realize what else they can do and how that supplements whatever it is, is their permanent or their regular kind of employment. But uh, they're there at any yeah. time. But they've been able to pass it on and the thing has... I was sent there to basically make the transfer between its dependency on, uh, on the resources it had previously had to become a self-sufficient uh, and self-sustaining organization and have its own identity, which it has. It's an identified component mm -hmm. of the Canadian forces, the cadet instructor list. Yes. You're the experts in teaching that of the cadets. Yes. That's the recognition. And uh, you grew into that by virtue of you took the challenge from ground zero and went all the way through to where it uh, it stands and however. Well, it thank you for today. for doing that. You paved the way, I think, for so much of it to to go. And and actually, one of the things you commented earlier was the successes of people after their time at Quadra. I, yeah. I, I I'm always amazed that when we talk to our alumni friends, and I want to interview lots of them who who had unbelievable success after Quadra, and they all. Yeah. Well, well, maybe not all of them, but many of them attribute their successes to learning from Quadra. So yeah. that, that's a pretty powerful thing. 
Well, it was a unique experience. The other thing that I think uh, grew Quadra was this international cadet exchange thing. And uh, from Americans to whatever they were, West Germans and, uh, oh, good grief, there were uh, Belgium and Holland. And, uh, and, yeah. I remember at one point, I think we had six groups there, and I had said, therefore, six national anthems plus our own shall be played every morning mm-hmm. at divisions. Mm-hmm. And Lieutenant Shepard, get on and get that right. And I don't want to hear wimpy music. I want to hear it played <laughs> properly. And uh, so uh, in the White Ensign days, when we flew the White Ensign, and on, on Sundays, I had the battle ensign from the cruiser Quebec. Oh, really? Yes, and I'll tell you, that's a, well, I don't know if you, you'd be here all day, but you don't want to be. But <laughs> anyway, the battle ensign will go up, and uh, when it uh, drooped, uh, the fly was almost was just inches from the deck, it was a big... off the gaff, you know. So I have several, you'll see, it's all in there. Yeah. Across the harbor was a fellow who had been a, a real true patriot, an ultra-conservative, loved to see the white ensign fly in the morning, listen to the band play and the colors and every morning, and if it was not to his liking, he would phone and say something about it. Well, we have an exchange uh, group in there, West Germans, and you know what the national anthem is, mm-hmm. Deutschland, mm-hmm. with the words changed, <laughs> but the music isn't. Right. So it's played about anthem number three. And up goes the West German flag at that time. Well, within minutes of it, either poll, we had the call from the other side, how could you play? Yeah. We've won that battle sort of thing. <laughs> so that was one of many that I had over language use. Wow. When we decided that if we are a bilingual nation, that we should teach and speak French. 95% of the people could not speak French other than above grade eight level. Mm-hmm. But the order went out, tomorrow is a French day, and all orders shall be given in French, and the daily orders will be published in French, and there shall be no variance or deviation from the routine. The famous words, fail not at your peril. So there you have it. So they'd gone on with it. Well, thank you, sir, because I struggled through French Day for <laughs> all my whole cadet career. <laughs> well, I had the best seat in the house, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it was wonderful to see it. Yeah. And to get up in the dais and uh, to see the parade commander or the XO, who would yeah. be in the divisions, give the command of the cadets, come to attention. So that's when we started changing the solar flashes. So one side was English and one side was French. Ah. So the band... And the OJT, the guards, had the bilingual flashes. And uh, we would come down to the building behind us here and uh, uh, do the uh, ceremony of the flags and all that sort of thing. Yeah. One night in French and one night in English. The admiral used to get many letters complaining about the French. Oh. It should not be wow. happening wow. here. Wow. All disregarded, of course, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, that's the way it was. If yeah. you don't like it, don't come. <clears throat> or learn the language and understand, but get on board here. And you have to remember that a lot of the younger ones coming along, the educational program is changing, so they're learning language. We are now officially bilingual. Yeah. Federal government regulations are beginning to reflect it, so they're hearing yeah. more and more the use of this language. Yeah. So it's a great gift to have a second language at your fingertips. In a lot of ways, I wish I had it, but well, like I do. said, I struggled. Yeah. But well, officers here, oh, officers he's, he's in the bilingual, forces, officially yeah, bilingual, yeah, yeah. and he got there because he had to be. Yeah. 
you get there, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. So uh, let me um, let me tell more about uh, your background, sir, for for the listeners. Your impact to Quadra is unbelievable. There's no doubt about that. But you know, my opinion is your impact to your community, Powell River specifically. Uh, is also unbelievable. You you served as uh, mayor at Powell River for many years. You were the coroner, um, which as a as a police officer myself, um, it, it's amazing. Uh, I don't know why anyone would do that job, but um, uh, you've you've just served in so many different capacities in your community. And yeah. uh, talk, tell me about some interesting coroner stories. Did you did you? Mostly Powell River that you worked? Or? No, I was appointed a provincial coroner okay. by warrant, and uh, it's all changed. I don't know how it works now, but mm-hmm. in those days, uh, a provincial coroner was had jurisdiction anywhere in the province okay. and could call upon to go where they were told by the chief coroner. Right. And uh, so uh, I always thought, well, when you asked what was it like, uh, I, I have to respond and say, well, it was quite a change to start to deliver, uh, be dealing with uh, dead issues. And, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, you, I'm sure, in your profession know much about how it's caused and what it happens. I'm there after the fact. Yes. And, uh, yeah. My role in society is to uh, act as an ombuds, uh, ombudsman uh, for the um, for the deceased person uh, to try yeah. to and, and to account for how when where and by what means uh, this uh, individual came to such an end yeah and uh, to to have the authority under the act to uh, uh, to provide a, a judgment of inquiry uh, to convene a, a, a an inquest right. uh, or whatever uh, the rules are much different today but in my day. Uh, I would, uh, we had what were called regional coroners. So, so there was a chief coroner who would be in uh, Victoria. And, um, and then I think they moved over to, uh, they're in Vancouver. Vancouver Burnaby, now, Vancouver, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we had regional coroners. And the regional coroner that, uh, because I was living in Powell River, was in Nanaimo. Okay. His name was uh, Dr. Stevenson. And uh, mm-hmm. he was an academic, actually, who took on the role. Um but I remember when I first met him and uh, and how, you know, how did my name come up and mm-hmm. uh, how was mm-hmm. I? Well, it came up and uh, I was just asked. Uh, yeah. I looked at this and I thought, well, well, yes, I'll give it a shot, see what happens. Well, we, they were very good. They gave us initial training. Yeah. And that was interesting, kind of fun to be back in the classroom. And then they were very good to, for me. They, uh, <laughs> I went to... to uh, Toronto on a couple of occasions right. to the big school and and uh, you know learned a lot of things about how this was all done. That's what I found interesting is how many different backgrounds become coroners. Yeah, you know, like uh, well, in in Victoria, one of the the former naval people, uh, Doctor Buckingham. Oh no, Ian, oh, Ian the course, diver. Yeah, yes, Ian was. Yes. Uh, we went to many conferences. Many together. Uh, many death scenes I went to yeah. with him, and yeah. um, but. Uh, you know, he, he was a doctor and yeah. he was, a, well, like yes. you said, he was a diver and it, yeah. just his background. And yeah. there was an old colleague uh, from from the police department, Dave Valentine, who, yes. who ended He's up being a coroner. He's a Powell River boy. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I, I always found it very interesting who who became a coroner. Right. And, yeah, yeah. 
Well, anyway, I got nailed and I yeah. was there. And, uh, <laughs> so I uh, did it for 16 years and, uh, and there were many experiences, some very sad. Well, it's only one, one that really still sits with me mm-hmm. that uh, I never sat. I, I had to, in the end, complete the file, but um, I, there was something else that went on behind this. I would not discuss that here, but that uh, out there is someone that I would dearly love to have a chance to sit down with and yeah. uh, talk about what took place. But uh, anyway, maybe one day. It's a, it's a, there's a sad side to some of those yeah. stories, but yeah. And there's yeah. some good that comes of all right. of it too. I mean, I had industrial accidents. I held a record of the longest inquest, I think, at one time, 13 days. <laughs> oh, and wow. it was in Powell River. It okay. was an industrial accident. Yeah. Uh, and at the mill? or At the mill. Yeah. And uh, the mill, which uh, had prided itself on a great culture of safety, yeah. And did practice it and had its safety committees and all that sort of thing. Sometimes you forget that uh, all of that's wonderful, but does it really work when the chips are down? Yeah. And uh, this yeah. dreadful thing happened on on Boxing Day, a snowy day, right uh, uh, at a place where this poor individual uh, suffered a, a, an, un, an untimely and un, most awful death. And... Um, so a lot of things were laid bare, yeah. and uh, I recommended to the chief coroner that an inquest be called, and he yeah. said, it's called, get on with it, get it organized. And yeah. So you get the, the sheriff, bless his heart, go find me five people, strong and true, all this sort of business. <laughs> off the sheriff, to be your, himself to be a your former jury, naval yeah. reservist. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, so he'd do hear that. And, uh, but because of the nature of this, you wanted somebody, and it's... You could never, A, know who they were. I could never approach anyone to ask them about it. I could simply suggest to the sheriff that it would be nice if there was someone there that had knowledge of whatever this was about. And for those jurors to determine who would be their chair or foreman. And uh, and for that court, I remember going into it and sitting, and uh, there were some very eminent people. You know, I'm a Queen's Counsel, and I'm this, and they had good records. I had Harry Rankin appear before me one time. Okay. Harry leapt up, and he said, nice to see you again, Your Honor. And I said, Harry, in this courtroom, the title is Your Worship. That's my title, all right? (laughs) Yes, Your Honor. (laughs) So sit down, Harry. But he was good, but high-powered lawyer, and uh, there for obvious reasons, and... uh, so, so what, having, what about your other time as your worship? I mean, how many years did you spend as the mayor? Uh, Twelve. Yeah. I'm the longest serving mayor in Powell River so far. And yeah. my successor, uh, who's a very dear friend, who actually defeated me, uh, he was my economic development officer. He said, such a good job that I was now out of practice. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a good changeover. Yeah. But uh, David has uh, stayed on and... Uh, and I believe uh, he will have 11 years, but he'll okay. have had more years in municipal yeah. politics than myself. Okay. But uh, 12 years and a wild ride uh, it was in many respects. <laughs> but uh, one of the biggest things, I was uh, very naive, I guess, in one one way. the um, You know, you get in there, you suddenly realize you're now the chief magistrate of the of the corporation of the district of Powell River. That's right. Uh, so uh, uh, we did a few immediate things. I taught them how to tell time properly in the 24-hour system, so everything from there on was <laughs> published in 24, and it lasted yeah. until uh, just a year ago when they finally changed it back. <laughs> 
So it almost wants me to wait to run the right. game to reinstate it, but I will. You should have had uh, Colors and Sunset, too, Well, it's right? close. So, we yeah, did. Yeah. Well, very nearly. We uh, we got this flag business organized. They had, yeah. it was an awful mess. They had these awful-looking flagpoles around town, and uh, and the flags were allowed to fade, and uh, that well, that's not good. So they were all torn down, and the proper mast was put up with a gaff. Perfect. And uh, the, the four stations were the City Hall, or Municipal Hall, City Hall, the fire station, yeah. Uh, and uh, the airport and the boat harbor. Okay, right. So they now properly display a crisp, clean, uh, uh, four-breadth uh, steamer and a six-breadth uh, summer season yeah. and a ceremonial flag in the viewpoints. Uh, so they're there. And then on uh, different holidays, uh, we recognize certain uh, ethnic uh, parts because of the structure of Powell River. Yeah. We would have uh, the Italian National Day. Okay. So I had the uh, Consul General come up from Vancouver, flew up. He was a pilot in the Italian Air Reserve. Nice young fellow, uh, you know. Well, God, you look at him, he was a movie star caliber. Mm -hmm. And talk about the attention he got from the audience, you know. <laughs> so it's not easy being a mayor sometimes, but anyway. <laughs> so uh, I had a, an RCMP escort, proper red. We had a limousine with a flag on the farfarer. Yeah. We were naming a street for one of the pioneer families Okay. Uh, in uh, Cranberry Lake. and um, well, Not in the lake, but in the in neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, So he came, and uh, the band was there, and the uh, band played uh, O Canada. It played the Italian national anthem. And the Italian choir stood there and sang it. Yeah. And we were almost on our way again. And uh, uh, they unveiled the sign, and he got back in the, in the limo. It went over to Powell Lake. He got in a special aircraft, flew back to Vancouver, and attended Italian Day in Vancouver that afternoon. Yeah. We, you know, we did that, and, uh, and, and uh, the Italian flag would fly for that day at all our sites. And, uh, the other large ethnic group that came into power immediately after the war from the Netherlands. Okay. Huge yeah. numbers of them. Yeah. But by then, they're, they had pretty well gone their separate ways. So it wasn't easy to do that sort of thing. But wherever there was an opportunity, well, then came the business of building a seawall, a seawalk. You have to build something, do something. And, of course, at this point, everybody has got the long list. And, of course, you have a, uh, an infinite budget. Anything you want, we'll build. You tell me, I'll build it for you. We had practically no money left after we paid for our expenses, so yeah. you depend on, as the third level of government in the Equator, you know where you are, you are yeah. below the salt, yes. okay? <laughs> so you come cap in hand yeah. to down here, and then you go sniveling off to the big one in uh, wherever it decides to land that year, yeah. and put your case forward along with the five, six, seven, eight hundred others all pitching the same thing. So it's a curious system in this country, but it still works yeah. under rather curious terms sometimes, but fortunately, mostly lawful, thank goodness. But on the other hand, come other such things. And in this case, I wanted to build a seawalk, like Stanley Park, right. along the foreshore, so it would marry up with other components, existing components, and... Uh, so uh, it was decided that uh, we had enough money to get on and build that section of it. So therefore, here is the uh, the work order. Get out there and get on with it. Yeah. And uh, so uh, day one goes by, and uh, I decided I guess I should go down and take a look at this. So I went down. I'm standing there, and I'm looking at maybe uh, 
75 feet of what's been scooped away from the seashore and the and so on, and I uh, had this hand suddenly around the back of my neck, and it was squeezing tighter and tighter. And I thought, well, it's a curious method of assassination, but I'm aware <laughs> that this is the risk of office. So buck up and get on with it, you know, mm -hmm. and accept your fate. And this uh, voice said to me in a loud voice, stop it. And I turned around, and here was the chief counselor from what was then known as the Sly Ammon nation. Okay, yeah. Today it is the Klaaman nation. Yeah. And uh, he said, you have successfully destroyed 2,000 years of evidence here. So I uh, thought, oh, ye gods. Well, you know, could it, I'd rather have a gunshot, if you don't mind, at the base of the skull, uh, <laughs> rather than this slow strangulation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was denied. And um, so I asked if he would show me what he was talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, listen, Stuart, you were a kid, and you used to swim off that beach. And you didn't see this? No. Yeah. We had other things to chase and swim after yeah, and yeah, so on in yeah. those days. Um, so I went down and I saw pictoglyphs and I saw, uh, you know, obvious evidence of some kind of painting and uh, scratching or uh, uh, what do you call it, you know, uh, tags that uh, yeah. I guess would be left behind. And then evidence of a midden and you could see the structure of what was there. And this this is never in my head, even at Quadra, yeah. where there was a huge First Nation presence. Yes. And the day the young cadet ran in with a skull yeah. and said, here, sir, for you, you know, sort of thing. I'll, if you're up for it, I've got two other little anecdotes I'd like to tell you about that, which make Quadra unique, but I'll finish this, Gary, for you on now. The, uh, so we stopped it. Yes. And then I realized, you know, I, I was... Young kid in that town, and uh, the only time we ever knew anything about Indians was that A, they lived out in Slamon, and B, they were good soccer players. And I've still got a few scars on my shins to bear the fact that as a grade six or grade seven, I got kicked out lots of times. But I had different thoughts then than I had today about who kicked me. Yeah. And I can remember that we were always told, never go into that bus station over there because they use it. And when you go to the theater for the movie, make sure you get there and you follow the because you cannot go up into the balcony. That's for the Indians. And the Indians can't go into the theater until you guys are all inside. Then they can go in and sit down, and then they have to wait and go out the fire escape. This is all in, you know, me as a kid and, and so on. And this is still going on, for heaven's sake, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to 1990-something. Yeah. You ride in the bus or you walk. You ride in the back of the bus or you walk kind of thing and so on. So I thought, look, I have a different role. I need to know more about this. So we both looked at each other and said, look, are we going to have a big fist fight here? Are we going to argue? Are we going to just uh, feed media a lot of press because that's a real appetite that loves to have all this stuff? Or are we going to do something about it? So we went and we sat down and we had a, a cup of whatever it was, and uh, so on. And, uh, and we sat down and thought out some principles of relationship. And within a few months, I went back to my council, he to his, and I said, look, here are some ideas that we put to you. 
Can you people work to turn this into a kind of formalized document that we can both sit down and sign in an honest and fair manner and live it? Uh, so, uh, you know, my council were just marvelous. There were three women on that council particularly who worked their hearts out, wrote the document. Their other council mates, uh, you know, agreed with this, presented. We thought, that's great. Put it before both. We decided we now have a document. So we thought we're going to proclaim this document to our two communities. We're going to do that on a very special day. And on the 10th of May, 2003, remember where the old general hospital was, the hospital number four, which had now been demolished mm. for hospital number five, <laughs> and, uh, uh, was the site of the original settlement the seasonal settlement of that Salish clan, the Slyamon. Okay. Yeah. The and they'd been thrown off that site by the Powell River Paper Company Limited, 1909, mm -hmm. at the behest of none other than Superintendent Powell, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, who relocated them to the mouth of the Slyamon Creek. Uh, you know, just took it away, because the Indian Act said, that's the way it's going to be. Right. And uh, they built their mill and uh, got rid of the village and, and uh, pulled down a lot of the material around to create a base so they could build a craft mill. There was a railroad yard back there in the logging days and so on. And then they built a hospital, wait till the war comes, then build a new ultra-modern hospital, which yeah. they did. Uh, and then it was demolished. Yeah. And that's where I was first uh, practicing as a carter in that hospital mm -hmm. in 1990. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the uh, I looked at that and I thought, this is your land. So I asked the chief if he would ask the elders if yeah. on that day, because we were going to sign this agreement, would they come and sit there on this special bench that uh, I had put there for them. Yeah. And uh, they came and there were maybe 18 or 19 and they were elders in the true chronological sense, anything else. Yeah. These wonderful weathered faces and so on, you can, you, you can feel that uh, there was a lot of wisdom there. And, yeah. uh, and there's a whole different society and way of living there. So uh, I stood up and I, uh, I apologized for what had happened. And I thought, well, that's a bit vacant, but I, it, you had to start somewhere. So let's begin with that. I told a quick story about my experience for which I was ashamed and uh, and now I found myself under my very threat of existence by your chief counselor, uh, who uh, has suggested perhaps there's a different way of doing this. So I give the land back to you. And uh, you know, it was marvelous to see the expression on their faces. Then I asked them if they would walk with us to Dwight Hall, which is three blocks away from this spot, to see this accord be signed, to be the witnesses for this statement. And I remember we stood uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the special hall off to one side. I thought we would get, because it was announced in the paper and a couple of letters of invitation were sent out, never acknowledged, mm -hmm. uh, 50 to 60 people. What luck, be that, be that. You know, I thought we'd get that. Well, uh, when the, the order was given to hit the drum and the young uh, First Nations uh, uh, lad uh, led his drummers out through those doors that they parted. Next came the elders, yeah. all wearing the beaded costumes. And then next came the chief counselor 
and then me, because they were first, you know, kind of thing. And uh, there were about 600 people in the hall. Oh. Um, and the fire marshal running around wringing his hand with a threat, <laughs> you'll not be promoted beyond that rank if you do anything about enforcement. <laughs> it goes like this. Yeah. And, uh, uh, two ministers of the Crown, Federal Minister John Reynolds, okay. came out unannounced, uh, two provincial ministers, didn't say they were coming, they came. And uh, we went up on the stage and uh, it was all set up, the documents were there, and we, it was explained what it was and we signed it together, exchanged the pens, exchanged gifts, and that was uh, 2003. And uh, a year later, uh, we signed the protocol, which was on uh, economic, cultural uh, development affairs, which is a working kind of document. Yeah. And the Community Accord is now 20 years old, almost 20 years old. And its last, uh, its sixth paragraph simply states uh, that it is a living document. Yeah. In 2018, the present mayor and the whole new structure of the nation of and sat down and reaffirmed it. And one of the most wonderful things was that they invited myself and the former chief counselor to sign it as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that document is now coast to coast, and nice. uh, it's patterned after, and here we are up to our necks in truth and reconciliation. And, yeah. and we're going to get through all of this. We're going to get through it. And bad things happen to good people, and okay, yeah. so let's unbad them. And yeah. But uh, we have to, a lot of work to do. Powell River wants to think about changing its name because of the legacy of Israel Powell. Uh, and you can imagine the uproar in the community. Right, yeah. But we'll wait and see. So that, goes. that story is actually one of the ones that I found in my research in preparing for this little event. Oh. It was the, that story about, uh, you know, you. The you accord, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, no, the whole, oh. hey, stop work. and. Yeah. uh and you agreed, and you said, "Look, we got to do the right thing." So uh, it was, it was, it was an interesting story to read. So mm -hmm. I, I appreciate you telling that as well, because uh, well, it's, it's very big in my life, and right. uh, yeah. you know, and it was. Uh, we had a wonderful government-to-government -government working relationship. I still go. I still go for different reasons there, mm -hmm. and uh, and and so on. They were wonderful. They uh, gave me a, uh, a name, a traditional name, and uh, in a full ceremony, and wow. so on. Yeah. And uh, the name is Coco, Q-O-Q-O-Q-O, nice. and it means snow owl. And I always tell them, yeah, your hair will get white one day too, don't you think about it? <laughs> but, uh, and, they, and then they sat me down and, and they told me the, the legend of the snow owl, which yeah. I'm not permitted to repeat, but right. uh, you know, it's a marvelous story. Very but, interesting. Uh, so, and then uh, our, our city, our, we have granted five... Uh, Freedom of the City Awards. Okay. Three of those have gone to First Nations. Yes. Okay. Dr. Elsie Paul and uh, her son, who is Chief Counselor, and uh, Chief Counselor Maynard Harry. Uh, and uh, now a fourth one has just been given to the Chief Counselor. Uh, the fifth one, I think there's only five, not four, five, went to uh, the astronaut who went to school oh. uh, in Powell River and Grief Point School. Really? Went to uh, Shirley Cole taught him. Huh. And uh, he's also a member of the Order of British Columbia right. and, and so on. Robert Thirsk. Okay. And Robert Thirsk threw in the satellite right over top of uh, Brooks School, the Bax Cameron Theater. And uh, they had a select group of kids uh, from the whole school district 
I was given the uh, the privilege of being the MC, and each of these children went up onto the stage, up until the uh, young adults in the high school, to mm -hmm. personally ask them a question. You know, what is what is this? And, of course, what the little ones are like, and the big ones, of course, are, you know, ominous questions. <laughs> are there any girls up there? You know, what, what's going on up there? In, the, <laughs> in space. This kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> So one of the stories of Quadra dates back to, again, the early days. And uh, this would be probably 1965. Okay. The OJTs have just been created. And uh, and then we had the two Weekies come along, and they're quite young. Yeah. And, uh, and so one of the big things two Weekies did in those days was to always make sure they bought something for mum to take back home. Right. And when they had their one half day out of those two weeks to go ashore on leave, which was from 1300 to maybe 1700, you had to really quick, hustle to get that gift. Trip. Yeah. So we'd have them driven into Courtney and, uh, and so on. They'd go up and look around. And uh, others would go different places. And uh, on this one occasion, there was one young lad uh, came back and he was really distraught. And, uh, so by the time the story got to me, and I wanted to hear it from him, that uh, these guys had driven up in a car and grabbed his cap and really scared him mm -hmm. and then took off, mm -hmm. but he didn't get his cap back. So he was worried about having to explain the loss of the cap, being out of the rig of the day kind mm -hmm. of thing. So this had gone on for two or three occasions, and, uh, you know, it, we, we're going to have to think of some way to deal with this, so... Uh, uh, I was just out somewhere, and the OJTs, sir, could we have a quick word with you? And I thought, yes, uh, if this is mutiny, of course, you know the price. But uh, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, I'll decide that. And uh, we were there, and, and they said, we really have to talk to you about the fact that this is going on. And we know who these guys are. And you've told us that if you ever lay a hand on anybody out there, no matter how mad you get, I am not going to be a happy camper, so... And, you know, instincts at that age are, you hit me, you're going to get hit back. You do bad things to me, I'm not going to be happy with you. We need to do something. And I explained to them, I'm bound, I can't authorize you to go out there and beat up other kids. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's the way it is. But I'll tell you, I will go in and speak to the uh, the detachment commander, the RCA police, yeah. and uh, so on. So I did, I went to them, we... Hit it off right away. He said, yeah, I have lots of issues like that. That's the way it is. And I said, uh, you know, I'm not sure just what the cause of it is. And he said, well, I'll tell you what the cause is to begin with. You bring those 50 OJTs out here, or all strapping young guys. He said, there are only so many girls who are around in the Comox <laughs> Valley. So new blood, you know, and it's a good season. Spring is ending, but hey. So they're looking around to check it out. And once in a while, somebody loses out. Yeah. So there's differences between them. And I'm sure there were issues, but I never saw a, nar a mark on an OJT however good they were good at cosmetics or whatever, to in any way cause the XO to tell me we have a problem. Right. So I said, well, who is the magistrate here? And he told me. And the magistrate turned out to be a retired uh, naval officer. Great to have them around. Perfect, yeah. And uh, so I got to meet him, and he had to, of course, uphold the, uh, the uh, authenticity of the court and say to me, well, I can't arbitrarily do this. I'm bound by the rule book and so on. But... So he said, uh, you know, there's a suggestion as to how this could happen. And uh, 
So I was beginning to twig to what was going on, and this is how it worked out. Right, you make a list of all the bad dudes, okay? You keep the list over there, Judge, just and check it out to be sure they're ones you say. Yes, that's a, 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 the same kind of list. Good. Now, Staff Sergeant, would you uh, uh, be prepared to come over to Quadra and bring your prisoners with you <laughs> and stand on the dais with me while we line up your prisoners in front of the dais, in front of the entire ship's company and a guard of armed OJTs, mm -hmm. where I will recount what has been going on and tell them that we do not appreciate the theft of Her Majesty's equipment, namely caps. Right. And here are the choices. It's very simple. Now, you will either stand here and each one of you come up on this dais and apologize to all these cadets and assure them that you will not do this again and get off the dais. And that's what we did. <laughs> and that's what we did. Well, the judge thought, that's a great one. Can I send more? And I said, no, we have to stick to the, this rule. <laughs> well, that's now, Sergeant, bless his heart. The next incident occurred, the fact that this was when unification yeah. was coming in. Uh, Minister Hellier was there. Minister Hellier was determined that we were not going to wear the red, white, or the blue anymore. It was going to be green. Uh -huh. uh, but at the same time, there were certain properties that we were going to get rid of because they were costing the Defense Department too much and so on and so on. And Goose Spit was on the list to go. Yeah. Well, the one thing that caused it not to go was I produced the lease that was almost unbreakable. It was a 99-year lease at the beginning of the Second World War to the Department of Land Defense and the province of British Columbia. Forgetting about one other party who had an interest in this, guess who? Yeah. And uh, so there was the lease. And here were these thousands of cadets benefiting from this program. And you're going to shut this thriving program down? For what? Because a group of people who lived, you know, prominent people in the valley, in Comox particularly, wanted to acquire that privately to develop a resort mm -hmm. and a marina and a private Yacht Squadron Basin, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of whom happened to be the publisher of the local newspaper, and my dad was running the local newspapers on the other side of the pond, and I had met him on different occasions, and a reasonable fellow. But when he suddenly realized that Alsgard over there was an Alsgard over here, <laughs> ah, I'll get him. So they decided to invade the spit. And they put an ad out saying, everybody with a private boat, such and such a day on this Sunday, we are going to come ashore and claim the spit as a public beach. And uh, the beach is clearly marked, no trespassing, Department of National Defense. Right. My job when I look in the Book of Rules is you shall defend the property and you shall read this act aloud in the face of trespassers completely, the Trespass Act from the book. Okay. So I had it in large print <laughs> <laughs> and I said to the staff sergeant, you know, this is going to happen. And I'm not going to take 600 cadets out there because I'm going to be dealt with by the parents of these children, these, uh, these kids for whatever happens. So it's me. And would you come? Yes, he said, I'll come and stand beside you. I'll put on my best reading trespass notice <laughs> uniform, you know. Yeah. So here he was. Regular activity Sunday on shore. This whole mass of people is coming at us. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And they get to within three boat lengths of the shore. And the leader of this pack, who, and they're all well-oiled by this time. They, 
you know, everybody's got to get some Dutch courage ashore right quick. And then, you know, we're big brawny people. Yeah. And the obscenities were incredible. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and here's this one guy. That's the last naval appointment you'll ever get, you know, this kind of stuff. And uh, you just wait. And Oh, God. Anyway, nobody moved. Nobody came near that beach. And uh, finally, I read this act two or three times. And uh, each time... The staff sergeant, who was a big fellow, got bigger and bigger. Yeah. And they were all looking at him and looking at me. They had a paper called the Free Press, I think. It was the Green Sheet. It came out. Do you know what the headline was the next morning? Navy defense spit with RCMP and vicious dog. <laughs> Guess where the Danish officer's dog was? It followed me around like it had been tied to me, and I never thought of it. All right was standing behind me. Yeah. I never knew it was there. When all this was over, just turned and went back saying, well, carry on, you lot, in the boats. And I went back thinking, God, it was an impressive act. And, uh, and uh, you, you bought your Carter. best uh, boots and your best uh, Sam Brown, and you look yeah. very smart. Thank you very much, Staff Sergeant. So I have that to this day, and that's part of the lore of the place. So to finish the story about the boy in the cap and all of this, the OJTs, uh, I said, okay, Given we have a slightly different circumstance, you know that you were told when you left home you were not to bring any civilian clothes. You would be issued your uh, work gear here and the uniform that is yours and yours alone. Well, every OJT had civilian clothes, of course, because <laughs> they had pretty much an open brow when they were required, which right. is one of the privileges they had. Yeah. So I said, well, what if? One of the, well, that we had a big open motor sea boat, beautiful old thing. It was yeah. taken off one of the cruisers and so on. And what uh, uh, if that boat should just do a trial run across to the other side? Because, you know, I am concerned about making sure there's adequate transportation for cadets returning on leave uh, and you can't be left behind. So I think uh, certainly the lads from the boat shed should get on and organize this. But you do that uh, at an appropriate time. Well, what I didn't know was these other so-and-sos were marching. They were going to have a face-to-face -face right by the, uh, uh, the Elk Hotel at the head of the jetty. And uh, they were going to have it out. And the deal was that the OJ, they were going to meet each other, and this was going to be it. So we couldn't have that happen. Right. But uh, I said, but anyway, whatever happens, and uh, however you trial that boat... I want to know what the results are uh, tomorrow and uh, so on. So all of this, so without knowing anything about it, this cutter goes off with all these mysterious bodies in it and goes in and under the Comox jetty and stays put. Meanwhile, at the head of the jetty, gathering and yelling and shouting, this was before these kids were made to come out there and apologize. So it's getting right. the time yeah. sequence. Yeah. Right. Here they were all ready for let's have it. So, uh, I couldn't stand this any longer, so I jumped into the Boston Whaler and took off and went round in behind and went up. And I was standing right on top of all the OGs that I knew were not there. And uh, these guys start to advance down the jetty. And a padre from the base at Comox came up beside me and he said to me, Sir, you can't do this. And I said, Do what? And he said, You know what I mean. Underneath us are here, and here come these boys. And I said, Padre, I fully understand what it is, and I know what I can, what my duty is, and what my responsibility is. I appreciate that you're here, 
And if your services are needed, thank you. But I <laughs> think we must let matters play out. Well, I am really going to make an issue over this. And he was really mad about it. Yeah. And in a sense, and in retrospect, you look at it, and of course, it's his duty to do that, to tell me that uh, you know, my judgment may be out of whack and uh, so on. So anyway, uh, the RCMP had a couple of constables sort of in advance of these guys, and they were kind of leading them on down toward the jetty with no evidence of anybody except a few people down at the end. At the appropriate number of taps on the uh, planking on the jetty, ladders on the side of the jetty started to get tense, and up over the top came these people dressed in these different clothes. Who were these people? You know, they came in from some kind of a fish packer out there. Who knows where they came from? You know, and they've been at sea for two months, and they're, they were go they're going to the out. They want to go. They don't want any obstruction up there. So up they go. And, of course, they were, they're were they pretty mature guys at this stage. And when you hold your breath, you can become a lot more mature, too. <laughs> so here it comes. The two groups are coming, and all of a sudden this group stops. Yeah. And the two guys in the RCMP keep walking on, you know, as if to think, well, they're right behind us. Because they were giving the impression they were going down to stop these OJTs. These fish packers were coming ashore to drink in the Elk Hotel. You're not having that kind of stuff in this place. As for this rabble, we'll settle with them after that. But we're going to keep the peace. Right. The advancing group took one look at this phalanx. The RCMP guys turned around and looked at them. The whole thing came to a dead halt without a word. These kids turned around and took off up there. Didn't run, just went away. And these uh, other ragbags went back and climbed over the jetty into the <laughs> into whatever was under beneath. Yeah. And I went about my check of things around the harbor, went back, and that was the end of that. So the end of it really was the day the worst of them, the ones that were bothering the younger younger lads there, were made to apologize in front of the sea cadets. That changed it. It gave a lift. So uh, different things happened, and uh, you don't look back on that for necessary a standard for next year. That's a given. We've done well that. There wasn't any more trouble with that. And how you sort out those things personally, if you like her, she likes you, or whatever. It it's all, all comes down to the who's taking you guys the woman. Sort it out. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's up to you. You deal with that. But I really admired them, and uh, and many of those OJTs went on to become staff officers in Quadra. Yes, yes. One of which was scatting. And young Scatting was the chief cadet of Quadra. Yeah. He is a, today a, refire, a re retired full professor from the University in Ontario somewhere. Okay. Yeah. You know, you think of where they've gone. Here's a young lad that came out, worked in the boat shed, became chief of the boat shed, became chief of Quadra, became a staff officer, became the boats officer. I, I actually was want to talk to a lot of the old chiefs of Quadra. Uh, oh. I know they have they have a connection. They They yeah. do stay in touch with each other, so... Dave Scatting is, is yes, the fellow is you're one. talking about. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, the last one I had. Uh, oh, yeah, he was he was a nice guy. Hunter was his name. He came from Ontario somewhere. And uh, I had just uh, had my own little boat, that uh, little 18-foot uh, double eagle thing. And yep. I brought it over to Quadra, and I uh, kept it there. And uh, I uh, offered the – I said, if any OJT wants to – I'll pay an OJT to just keep it looking nice for me, but – I have to pay for that. This is a personal thing. Right. And uh, so uh, Hunter, my coxswain, immediately leapt out of the chair. Well, I'll do that for you, and uh, which he did. And I said, well, you can also learn to drive the boat too. So when I'm not here and I need it, 
uh, I will pay you to come over to Comox with my boat to uh, bring me back rather yeah, than yeah, yeah. have a service boat come. Yeah. And I'd always make a big deal of paying the money right so everybody else could see it. So nobody could say <laughs> that was crown fuel or yeah. I'm employing that guy who is really employed by the service right. and not yeah. a civilian. He was a great kid. And, uh, I often wonder what happened to him. But uh, there was a lovely picture taken of him. Uh, uh, we'll have to put the word out and see if we can whatever. track him down. Well, whatever. Hunter, yeah. 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 But I, and somewhere in their files they would have this. But yeah. I remember yeah. this photograph that the DND took, and I sent it to his parents. I just wrote a letter. Uh, I'd come across this photograph, and this is someone I think you might know, and signed it and said, oh, <laughs> yeah. I got a very nice letter back. Yeah. I think the letter was very brief. It just said, yes, we do. <laughs> that was it so that in itself tells the story yeah. so uh, like I say so there are many many other things that I you know I, I know I've missed a lot and uh, well, I know I've taken an ordinate amount of your time for which the, I'm grateful at the very least we've we've heard a lot of good stories and uh, I think like I said sir there's so many people who uh, have looked up to you over the years but uh, I really thank you for coming and thanks, Richard, for, for making sure uh, Stuart gets here. Uh, sir, what we do for um, – this is kind of a special one. Normally, we give out the, the, the Quadro Alumni podcast coin. Today, we're going to give out the Quadro Alumni podcast coin in the fancy uh, blue velvet box for you to uh, put on your desk at home. And uh, really appreciate you coming and being on the podcast with us. Thank you for all your service to Quadra and uh, for those who learned from you. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you. <clears throat> it's a privilege to, uh, to do that. I want to just say, uh, in appreciation of, uh, of this, uh, this wonderful thing, that uh, for my, <laughs> excuse me, for my life uh, and the experiences that I've had, I, you know, how can I but be thankful uh, to this country? Yes. Well, so I'm so sorry, but that's what the hell. Anyway, I get to take charge of myself here. The, um, you know, and there's much to do, and I look forward to the challenges that have been handed to me right now. And uh, for the day, the, the day I draw my last breath, as I tell them, look, yeah. how do they get rid of me? Like the Black Fleet, uh, the hull will be dragged out and up on the beach and broken up and burned for metal or whatever is salvageable <laughs> and the rest will be thrown out. That's the end of it. Yeah. And uh, that's what I've written down. That's what's to happen and it's on. But um, Well, I will certainly uh, take some metal. Look look for the day and uh, yeah. I'll, I'll join you in, in when, when you're finally dragged up on the beach there, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so I want to thank everybody uh, and we'll... We'll end the podcast. Thank you very much. Could I finish with one final thing? All right. So brief. When Quadra was commissioned in 1956, 56. I think, commissioned as a yeah. proper uh, naval establishment, yeah. uh, Commodore Patrick David Budge yes. was the commissioning officer. Yes. And the book was signed at Quadra. And the book was in my possession all the way through my time. It is now in the possession of the, somebody running the Quadra Museum. Yes. yes. And uh, in that book, we'll tell another story of all of interesting names, from the chief of defense staff uh, to many other officers and 
whatever, pass through there. At the commissioning. And I think it would right. be worth a read to see. And if you ever want to speak to me again before scrapping. Yes. And so on, <laughs> uh, I'll be happy to embellish those stories. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, so take care of yourselves. All right. Thank you. Stand easy. Thanks for listening to the Quadra Alumni Podcast, created by Matt Waterman, one of the founding members of the Quadra Alumni Association. Join us next time for more stories about HMCS Quadra, its people, and their memories of summer camp at Goose Spit in Comox, BC. Subscribe to the Quadra Alumni Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. If you want to be a guest on the Quadra Alumni Podcast, please join the Quadra Alumni Association at www.quadraalumni.com and your story could be part of the inventory of memories. Thanks for listening to the Quadra Alumni Podcast.